Science denial is growing because if you don't fight back, who has the microphone? The liars, the people with the disinformation and the misinformation who are spreading it out to that audience. So if you never, if you never push back against that, what happens to the audience? The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I talk to a philosopher and best-selling author who may be the world's expert on bridging the gap in talking to science deniers. This is the second podcast in my series on how to change minds and influence people using the rational art of war to spread the rational view. As always, if you enjoy this content, please hit like on your podcast app and share it with your friends. Uh, love to hear from them. Love to hear from you. Join us on our Facebook discussion group at The Rational View. Lee McIntyre is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University, formerly executive director of the Institute for Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University. McIntyre is the best-selling author of Post-Truth, along with 13 other works of fiction and nonfiction, including Dark Ages and The Scientific Attitude. McIntyre has had appearances on CNN, PBS, NPR, and the BBC, and has spoken at the United Nations, the Aspen Institute, and the Vatican. He starred in the docuseries Infodemic, Global Conversations on Science and Misinformation. In November 2018, McIntyre went undercover at the Flat Earth International Conference in Denver, Colorado, as research for his newest book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, which resulted in over 100 media appearances, including this one. Lee, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks very much. Appreciate you having me. Thank you for coming on. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? Where are you from originally? How did you get into philosophy? Why are you following this path? Right. Uh, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and um, I grew up in a uh, working class neighborhood, working class family. Neither of my uh, parents went to college. My dad is electrician and my mom is a tailor. Um, and we had but we had a lot of books in the house and they the way that they raised us was to talk to us, ask us questions. Uh, we didn't get a lot of baby talk. They tended to, you know, if you'd ask a question about why is something this way, the answer was, well, why do you think it's that way? Then we'd have a discussion about it. So in a way, I was kind of being prepared to be a philosopher without really knowing it and without, I think, my parents knowing what they were, uh, uh, you know, why that was uh, something that philosophers did. And my main source of amusement and inspiration back then uh, the, the school that I went to was really not very good. Uh, I read the encyclopedia. Uh, we had one of the, the books that we had in the house was the World Book Encyclopedia. And my dad, uh, you know, who had paid a lot on a working man's salary to own a World Book Encyclopedia, said, look, everything is in there. That's every all human knowledge. And I thought, well, damn, if I read the encyclopedia, I'll know everything. And so I, I tried to do that. And... Um, I found myself drawn to the philosophers and the scientists and the writers. Um, and that's kind of in its own crooked way, how I ended up becoming a philosopher. That's amazing. So encyclopedic knowledge 
uh, led you here. <laughs> I, I had a similar experience as a child. We we didn't have the entire encyclopedia. We just had the free A section. So all of my school projects were on <laughs> yeah. aardvarks and astronomy and anything that began with yep. A. <laughs> The, the Funk and Wagnall is what you had, I'll, I'll wager. <laughs> yeah, uh, probably. Because you could get that with a free set of dishes at the uh, uh, at the local grocery store. We had a lot of A volumes of the Funk and Wagnall as well. <laughs> so with my podcast, um, one of my targets or one of my goals is to work to help people fight science denialism. And your book was like, wow, this is great. I have to have you on the podcast. And you know, we need to communicate and bridge the gap on polarized issues. Uh, you've been in the trenches on this topic for a long time, and you've published a, a treatise, I guess. Uh, could you maybe step our listeners through your thesis? How how should we talk to science deniers? Yeah, I think the first thing is to make clear why we need to take science deniers seriously. Because the reaction that I get from a lot of people when they hear that I've written a book called How to Talk to a Science Denier is, why would I want to do that? I'm not going to change their mind. You know, it's never going to work. And it's uncomfortable. And why would I even want to do that? And I think that, I mean, that's a good question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it's one that's been answered by the empirical literature. There was a study in Nature Human Behavior in the summer of 2019 by Cornelia Bache and Philip Schmid, which provided the first actual empirical evidence to show that you could change science deniers' minds by presenting them with uh, a challenge to their view. Now, there were, and I go into this, you know, chapter and verse in, in my book, there are certain limitations to the study. The study was done online. It was, you know, there, there with a relatively naive audience who was hearing some science denial for the first time. Okay. So I got interested. I mean, I'd been studying this for 10 years just as a philosopher of science before the empirical study even came out. So, of course, confirmation bias. I said, wow, this has to be right. It agrees with my views, right? <laughs> but, I mean, it was good empirical work. Okay. And then, but then I thought, they didn't go far enough because what about the hardcore deniers? And what about talking to people face-to-face? -face? Because all of the anecdotal literature that I'd read suggested that the hardcore deniers who changed their mind, it was because they had spoken with somebody face-to-face who had taken the time to break down that wall of mistrust and engage them and treat them with calm and respect and patience and dignity. Mm. That's how you change people's minds. Mm. And so I thought, there's a book in this, right? It's a practical book. It should be a book for the general public, something that's readable. Because, you know, if it is possible to get through to science deniers, and if this literature is right, then what it means is anybody can do it. Anybody. You don't have to be a specialist in science to make progress in talking to science deniers. Wow, that's, that's, that's amazing to think that you can actually change the mind of the hardcore deniers. I, I've always felt that, you know, there's people that are so dedicated to the cause that, it, you know, you're not going to convince them. You're going to be arguing with them to show an alternative to the people on the sidelines that aren't so dedicated. But but you, your thesis is that you can actually reach these hardcore people. Well, you, you can. It's not easy and it doesn't usually happen, right? It's usually the case that you're right. There are some people that are so dug in, you're never going to get them. But 
that's not a reason not to try because you never know before you get into it who you're going to get and who you're not because you never quite know what their reasons are. And by the way, science denial is growing because if you don't fight back, who has the microphone? The liars, the people with the disinformation, the misinformation who are spreading it out to that audience. So if you never if you never push back against that, what happens to the audience? They turn from people with a couple of questions or, you know, maybe feeling a little alienated into somebody who is a hardcore denier. And then maybe they're ungettable later. So science denial is a bit of a spectrum. And you, you're right. You want to pick them off when they're easy, right? You want to talk to them before they've gone to the, to the convention and become radicalized. But that doesn't mean that the hardcore are impossible to get. There, I can give you stories that I, I talk about in the book, but I'm happy to talk about them here too. Mm -hmm. Stories of hardcore deniers who have changed their mind. Wow. Yeah, I would certainly be interested in hearing uh, maybe a story. Um, but the uh, what I've read is that you know you can't convince them using facts, right? You can't just say you're wrong. Here's yeah. the science, or you're wrong. Here's the data. <laughs> this is. This is the wrong approach. Your approach is to listen to them and create an emotional connection. I think this is this has been what I've heard um, time and again is that you need to empathize. You need to have that emotional connection before you can talk logically. Yeah, and I didn't invent this. Um, this is something that people are using for science deniers. It's something that they're using, you know, more widespread than that to, to get other people who are dug in to their hardcore political or other views to change their minds as well. But you're absolutely right that, and it's too bad, but I mean, if you think that you're just gonna attack a science denier with facts and they're gonna say, oh, what a fool I was and change their mind, that's just not gonna happen. And the reason is because that's not why they believe it. They don't, they don't believe it on the basis of facts. I mean, how could they, right? How could somebody think the earth was flat based on the facts? How could they think that climate change isn't real if they're looking at the evidence, right? It's, it's not a fact-based belief. It's an identity-based belief. And you also have to remember that it's not just about doubt of the scientific consensus. It's about distrust of the people who are scientists. And so, I mean, the first hurdle you have to overcome is to just get them to listen. So, you know, this model, it's called the information deficit model that you could just present the facts and it'll be over, presumes that they trust you enough to listen to your facts and they don't. And so how do you overcome that? How do you get somebody to listen to you? You treat them like a human being in person and then they begin to trust you. And then over time, they can change their mind. Let me tell you a quick story now of that in action. Um, there was a virulent uh, climate denier named Jim Bridenstine, member of Congress, gave a speech on the floor of the U.S. House saying all the things that climate deniers say. Um, so, of course, Trump appointed him to be the head of NASA, because what else would you do with a guy like that? But, you know, make him head of the you know, <laughs> main scientific organization that studies climate change in the whole world. So Jim Bridenstine became head of NASA. Within a, a month, within six weeks, he changed his mind, gave another speech in which he said he had been wrong 
that anthropogenic climate change was real, we were the cause of it. I mean, and that's incredible. When's the last time you can think of any member of Congress saying they were wrong about anything, let alone something like that where they were <laughs> dug in? Now, how did that happen? I think it happened because as head of NASA, uh, what happened with Bridenstine? All of a sudden, he was surrounded with scientists. He was their boss. All these people who had been the enemy, the other, the people that he didn't trust, he knew them on a first name basis. Hmm. He was hanging out with them in the hallways. He was having lunch with them. He was their boss. And they're pretty trustworthy, credible people. And he started to change his mind because he started to trust them. And I think that's just one example of a hardcore denier who was overwhelmed with identity change and changed his beliefs. Yeah, that's, that seems to be key is, is the, the tribalism involved in these decisions and the isolation, uh, an othering of a group of, of people whose opinion you don't trust. You need to have that isolation and that othering, I think, to, to enable science denialism or, or any of these things. And they cultivate it, by the way, the deniers. I mean, the, the people who cause the denial, the people who are inventing the disinformation that drives the denial. That's their goal. It's not just to get you to believe false information. It's to get you to be so polarized that you don't trust information from any other source. That's, I mean, the, the reason there's so many deniers is because we're targeted for denial. So, I mean, that, that, that leads to a good question. I mean, what's behind all the science denialism we see in the world today? Is it always motivated by a hidden interest? Like, what is driving this? Yeah, it, it's... It's a great question. It's a complicated question because science denial has been around, you know, for as long as science. But the and it's, you know, clearly worse back in Galileo's day, back in Giordano Bruno's day when people were burned at the stake. You know, I mean, that's pretty bad um, it, it now. So now the consequences are maybe not quite, you know, so so awful from the from the science deniers. But I'll make the claim that others have made that modern science denial uh, really started with the tobacco companies in the 1950s, hmm. which discovered that the way to push back against science they didn't like was not with other science, but with public relations. Hmm. And they did that to such great effect that they were able to raise doubt where there wasn't any about whether smoking caused lung cancer and really outlined the blueprint that was then followed by, you know, uh, the, the fossil fuel companies for fomenting um, climate denial. And so sometimes there's money behind it. You know, sometimes you just, you, you know, you follow the money and that explains why the denial is there because it's somebody's interest. But it's not always money. Sometimes it's ideology. Sometimes it's political power. And I think one thing that's happened in the Internet age is that people have discovered, you know, people with an agenda have discovered, wow, that tobacco strategy looks pretty compelling. You know, if they're able to do that, I can get people to deny whatever I want them to deny. And, you know, for my own selfish interests, not again, not necessarily money, but, you know, other interests. And they do that. And the way they do that is through disinformation. Disinf and, and we're all attuned to this now because of the war in Ukraine. And we see the disinformation coming out of Russia 
that, you know, they're using about how, well, this is no war. It's a special military operation. And, you know, there are Nazis in Ukraine and they're going after, you know, this is all just lies, lies, lies. This is what the, you know, uh, Putin is a KGB man. That's what they do. Their first and foremost uh, job, uh, spread disinformation. Mm -hmm. What people don't realize is that Putin has been attacking American science for 20 years and that a lot of the disinformation about climate change, about vaccines, especially about the COVID vaccines, about GMOs, about 5G, it's from Russia. Mm. It's there, there are Russian troll farms that uh, create and pump this stuff out. It's picked up by American media because it is, you know, uh, mother's milk for the for the culture wars, you know, for uh, for the the polarization that's going on between the political parties, and they pick up Russian propaganda, pump it out, and then it ends up horribly. It ends up where you have something like vaccines, uh, anti-vax, which was really nonpartisan or bipartisan from the beginning. I mean, there were liberals as well as conservatives who were against vaccines doesn't make it right. It just, you know, shows you that it hadn't really been politicized yet. But now the COVID vaccines, boy, that's a that's a political thing. How did that happen? Because somebody politicized it for their own purposes. Mm -hmm. So denial happens not by accident. It's uh, I often say that science denial is not an accident. It's a lie. Somebody on purpose is creating disinformation which is used to radicalize people into disbelieving. It's the same thing that happens with foreign, uh, with war, with, you know, battles between foreign countries, the information war going on right now between Russia and Ukraine. It's the same. It's just over here with the domestic audience. So the, the strategy then of these denial pushers is to sow distrust amongst a group, uh, an authority figure or a, a group in authority. It's not necessarily to put together a cogent argument uh, against That's right. the science. It's to poke holes and create mistrust and then doubt will follow. Is that is that the basic strategy? You don't need a cogent argument. All you need to do is to raise doubt. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you can raise enough doubt and, and you know what? The doubts that you raise don't even need to be consistent with one another. There, there's a um, there's an old uh, uh, Soviet or actually it predates the Soviet era. It goes back to, to Lenin. There's a there's a technique. Uh, of disinformation called the fire hose of falsehood. Uh, the gish gallop. <laughs> you raise doubts, and they can be self-contradictory doubts, but it doesn't matter. You know, when, when they accused Putin of um, poisoning uh, Navalny, uh, or actually it was another guy, it was before Navalny, you know, which he did, um, he said, oh, uh, we don't even have that kind of poison in Russia. And, you know, maybe it was the Israelis and, you know, we can't prove that it was poison. And, you know, if somebody did it, it wasn't us. And if it was us, you know, it wasn't something that I knew about. You know, just this laundry list of contradictory bullshit. He was not even trying to be consistent. He didn't have a coherent picture of the world. Just it's not me. And that's what happens with denial, too. Um, by the way, not just with science denial. Look what happened with the uh, January 6th insurrection. Um, what was the claim? Well, these from the right, well, these are not actually, this wasn't an insurrection. It was a peaceful protest. 
And if it wasn't a peaceful protest, then it was Black Lives Matter or Antifa. And, you know, and I mean, it was to fire hose of falsehood. It was the same thing, you know, out of Soviet Russia. Same technique. It seems to be just throwing throwing bait out there and looking for people to to take it based on their biases rather than to examine it critically. So, I mean, you can disagree with any particular topic in science. There is um, disagreement, which is healthy in science. Where do you draw the line between scientific controversy and denial? Is it, is it you know, if nobody admits they're a science denier, that's right. <laughs> what questions should I be asking myself to determine if maybe I'm not being controversial? I'm a denier. I've been radicalized. Yeah. Uh, I've never met a denier. It's always, I'm not the denier. You're the denier. You know, you're still believing the information from NASA. Why do you think we went to the moon? I'm the scientist, you know. Yeah, no, that, that's, you're, you're absolutely right. Here's the rubric that I use. Um, Number one, science deniers challenge the scientific consensus. Now, that's not sufficient because scientists also challenge the scientific consensus. That's what Galileo did. That's what Wegener did. I mean, that's what Semmelweis did. That's what scientists do. Mm -hmm. Science deniers go beyond that. Science deniers, in addition to challenging the scientific consensus, they don't have good evidence for their own view or you know, against the consensus view which Galileo did, by the way, which all these other people did. They have the evidence. Um, and then the real hallmark of a science denier, the, the, the kind of the telltale red flag sign, is that they cannot tell you what evidence would change their mind. Hmm. So a scientist lives or dies by the evidence. And so the question that I love to use with a denier is, it sounds like your views based on evidence. And they say, yes. And I say, well, then tell me this, what evidence could change your mind? And it gets very quiet. Mm. Now, sometimes they'll say, well, proof. And I'll say, wait a minute, I thought you said you were a scientist. Scientists can't prove things. They go on the preponderance of the evidence. It's about warrant and likelihood. And then, you know, then I've got them on my terms, right? Because then we're talking about warrant. And, you know, I love that moment when they say, well, but wait a minute, if you haven't disproven my hypothesis, it could still be true. And I'll say, yeah, it could still be true, but why in the world would you give more credence to the belief with less evidence? Mm. That's just irrational. Ah. And then they got nothing to say. Right, right, right yes. So, you know, so, so by pushing them, so notice there, I'm not talking about content. I'm not saying, well, you know, you're not taking into account the, you know, the, the, the ice temperature in Greenland. You know, I'm, I'm not doing the technical stuff, at least not the scientific technical stuff. I'm doing the logical stuff, I'm do, which is one of the techniques that Bates and Schmidt use to push back against deniers. I'm talking about not what they believe, but why they believe it and pointing out their flaws in their reasoning, their misunderstanding of how science works. And they're really not prepared for that. The flat earthers that I spoke with, they had a whole uh, um, curriculum of what to say if somebody brings up 
you know, the, the problem of a ship going hull down over the horizon, or what to say if somebody pulls out a picture from, you know, NASA showing that we really did go to the moon. I mean, they were ready for that. They, they, had, they, had, they had a whole punch list of things to say because somebody had told them what to say. You know, if you get somebody pushing back, here's what you say. They didn't have anything to say when a philosopher came in their midst and said, why do you believe that? Yes. And they, they were, or, or what evidence would convince you you were wrong? They, they were unprepared and it just revealed them nakedly to not be reasoning correctly. Wow. So, so tell me about your, your trip to the Flat Earth Conference. That's really interesting and, and, and yeah. brave to go into the lion's den, as it were. Well, it, it, was, it was weird. I mean, there were 650 of them and me, and they were not fooling. They really believed it. Uh, I don't know how brave it was. I mean, you know, I they, I wasn't, I wasn't really risking much. You know, I, I kept my mouth shut that first day. I listened to what they had to say. It was intimidating in a way because you know all these people who believe something that you know I know is wrong. But once I kind of came out and started talking to them, they were really fascinated. They wanted to talk to me. They wanted to convince me that I was wrong. Mm -hmm. And. You know, I wish I could follow up on what I just said about, you know, the, the techniques that I used on them to say, you know, that one of them did pull off their badge and say what a fool I was and leave the conference. That didn't happen. And but as you pointed out earlier, community is a big factor in belief. And when you're surrounded by 649 other people who believe what you believe, you know, that's a pretty strong incentive. Yes. Yeah. Um, and. It also takes a while. And I went in there, noticed the title of my book is not How to Convince a Science Denier. It's How to Talk to a Science Denier. Yeah. I wanted, my goal was to get the flat earthers to listen. Mm -hmm. and, uh, if, if I convinced them, great. That was, you know, terrific. And I, and I would have loved that. And, you know, I would have loved to write about that. But my goal was to get them to listen. And you know how I did it? I listened to them. Okay. okay. I, I I listened to what they had to say, and they talked and talked and talked, and then eventually said, "What do you think? You think I'm right, or that makes sense, doesn't it?" And then now we're having a conversation, hmm. and it was, um, it was searing. I mean, I I would, and I went for the big fish. I mean, I didn't just talk to the people who were there. I, would grab speakers when they came off stage and buttonhole them, you know, in front of their audience. Or one guy I took out to dinner and just the two of us for two hours. Wow. I mean, I wanted to really mix it up as much as I possibly could. Because I'll tell you the truth, I was tired of doing what I was doing. I'd spent 10 years studying this. And, you know, I was convinced I was right. Everybody who was reading me was convinced I was right. But what was I really risking? Mm -hmm. I wanted to see how this worked in person. Um, you know, and I tried to pick out the worst science deniers I could think of and practice because my goal in writing the book is to raise an army of people who realize we can all do this. We can talk to the climate deniers. We can talk to the anti-vaxxers. I mean, those are the people who are really dangerous. I don't think the flat earthers are dangerous. Uh, at least I, I didn't at the beginning. I think there's something there. Um, but, you know, contributes to a culture of denial. But the climate deniers are going to kill us in the long run. 
I mean, we're not Congress isn't doing anything about this. It's I mean, and it's not just denial. It's lack of caring. Which I also talk about in the book when I realize that it's not it's not all about belief. It's about ethics. It's about values. But we can still have conversations about that. It's still the same remedy. Get out there and talk to people who disagree with you. You don't have to go to a flat earth convention. Um, but you can. There's a new book out right now called Off the Edge about uh, by a journalist. who, And I haven't read it yet. But um, she's already doing some media. And it sounds like terrific stuff. And she went to a... Uh, 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 she engaged, I don't know if actually because I haven't read it, whether she went to a convention like I did, but she um, writes about the flat earthers. But, I mean, we should be doing this for all science deniers. Indeed. Um, I think, you know, one of the reasons I started this podcast was the same issue. I'd been, you know, skirmishing one-on-one -on -one in the comments section of various anti-science groups and just feeling beaten down. Uh, I needed to have a, a bigger voice somehow. Um, needed to have an, you need to have an army of people willing to have these one-on-one -on -one conversations. Uh, and I think in in science, it's not taught as a responsibility, and maybe it should be in science to to communicate your views. It's not nothing is taught about how to communicate science. I mean, they they, they teach you how to make PowerPoint slides, but that's about it, right? <laughs> Well, and, and, and that's too bad because uh, the scientists are in some ways the best advocates because nothing will overcome your distrust of a scientist like meeting a scientist. They're warm and interesting people, you know, trustworthy. Uh, you, you know, they, they're getting to talk about confidence intervals. I mean, you know, it's they're they're I, I mean, I'm a nerd, so I'm interested in that stuff. But I mean, they're they're quite. They, they they puncture the stereotype when you when you meet a scientist, as Jim Bridenstein found out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That that gets that bridges the otherness. You can't other people once you've talked to them and met them and 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 you know. Once you know them, you know, and they're handing out their business cards, which I recommend that scientists do, and encourage people to call with uh, with questions. And um, and and there, by the way, there are now places that train scientists to do this kind of communication. There's the Alan Alda Center up at uh, Stony Brook, and there's the uh, Center for Public Engagement with Science at University of Cincinnati, and they're training journalists and scientists and others to have these kinds of conversations, uh, which we should all learn how to do. Any ally of science can learn how to do this. One of the um, problems I see is the fact that many people's interactions are all through social media and social media is set up uh, to provide an echo chamber to reinforce whatever you're you want to hear and nobody wants to hear um, things that say they're wrong nobody wants to hear the other side so it, it sets up silos of communities with like minds and it I think is partially responsible for the or maybe mostly responsible for the upsurge that we see in in these in these obviously easily refutable uh, science denial facts coming to the surface. That and 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 mainstream media to a certain extent as well. But the social media echo chambers is a problem, and people 
you know, it's easy to to flame people and to laugh at them and make fun of them and, and stereotype them as idiots. But they're not all idiots. Like these, a lot of these people are just in the wrong tribe, or or they've been convinced by leaders or people with an agenda that this is that you shouldn't trust science. So, I mean, how do we get over the problems of social media? How do we get people to talk empathically uh, across the divide? It's a great question. I mean, social media is a big part of why science denial is so virulent now. Notice in what you said, I love what you just said, because it makes clear that it degrades everyone's behavior, not just the science deniers, but the allies of science as well, you know, the flaming, the pushback, you know, the way that it happens, because it's behind this screen and we're not having a human face-to-face conversation with somebody. So, I mean, what I, I think, again, that the solution is as often as possible to have conversations face-to-face. One thing you realize, too, when you talk to people face-to-face is not only that they're maybe more reasonable than you thought or that, that you have more in common with them than, than you thought, at least. It's that, you know, once people step outside that echo chamber of social media, you begin to get a sense of the proportion. On this on social media, it can seem like, well, it's, you know, 50-50. It's not. The, the, the people who are the deniers have a huge microphone for a very fringe message. And they're pumping that stuff out there 24-7. Are the allies of science working even half that hard? Uh, I, I remember reading a, a study. Uh, this was on conspiracy theories, which, which is part of science denial. It wasn't on science denial per se, but it was on conspiracy theories. And one of the researchers found that one of the main uh, guys pumping out the conspiracy theories on Reddit had, if you added up all of his posts, it was equivalent to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I mean, that's how hard... Some of them are working. There was a a study out of the Center for Countering Digital Hate uh, last year, which found that 65% of the anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to 12 people. Wow. So, I mean, and that's in terms of, you know, reach, volume. I mean, so that's the problem with social media. It can make, you know, it, it... applies this shadow to a mouse that makes it look like a bear. It's not. It's it's a small group of people with an absolutely enormous megaphone. And if, by the way, we still should push back on social media because if you don't, that megaphone's going to go out to all these other people who are also thinking, wow, look at all these other people. And it's, it's the algorithms too. I mean, you go to YouTube, you watch one Flat Earth video, it gives you 20 more. That makes it seem like, wow, there must be something to this. Look at all these people who agree with me. There aren't that many of them. Now, there are a lot of people who are uh, anti-maskers, anti-COVID. You know, they're, I mean, but it's because of the ineffective pushback in the, in the the messaging. I mean, again, that was created and it was very masterfully pumped out by the disinformers on social media. And, you know, they succeeded. In fact, they succeeded so wildly that it blew back. I mean, one of of Putin's goals in creating all of that um, disinformation about Moderna and Pfizer vaccine 
was because he wanted people to take the Sputnik V vaccine. He wanted that to be the dominant one on the world market. It's a lot of money if that's the one that you know the rest of the world took up rather than the Western mRNA vaccines. But he did such a good job with the disinformation that now there are people in Russia who are anti-vaxxers. There are people who are afraid to take the Sputnik V because it might have microchips in it. It might have it result in infertility. It might this, it might that. So, you know, those lies blew back on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and by the way, I mean, they are lies. That story about the, the microchips, you trace that back to its origin. That was invented by the GRU in Russia that pumped it out to one of their English language propaganda arms called the Oriental Review, which said, at the end of this, this complete lie of a story, share on Facebook, share on Twitter. Hmm. This was in April 2020, before the, the mRNA vaccines had even been invented. It said any future vaccines were going to have microchips. A month later, 44% of Republican voters thought that it was true. So this is a wildly effective method to pump out false information. And we have to push back on social media, but take it offline as well, just to get people to realize um, this stuff is not true. It seems like a, like you're swimming up a waterfall. These these conspiracies are funded sometimes by very deep pockets uh, when there's money behind them or politics behind them or states behind them. And the people that are countering it are volunteers, are people that, you know, we're not I'm not paid to do this. This is something that I do because I think it's important. It, you know, we need to organize better, I think. It, 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 you know, it doesn't have to be just grassroots and after the fact. I mean, one of the pleasures of reading the literature on this is to discover that maybe even more effective than debunking is pre-bunking. Okay. To, you know, inoculating people. I've got a friend, Andy Norman, who's written a book called Mental Immunity and has founded a think tank called the Center, uh, the uh, uh, Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative. And we're working now, I'm part of it, and we're working on this idea of trying to get people to realize the ways in which the disinformers are going to try to get you before they even get their message out. And that works. I mean, look at um, what happened recently, just to use another example from from the news. Um, Look what happened when Biden pre-bunked the lies that um, Putin was just about to tell about Ukraine. You know, oh, um, you know, they they were going to stage some sort of a a film, you know, showing some atrocity in, in, in Ukraine. And what happened? Biden's spokeswoman came out just before and said, well, you know, here is Biden himself said, yeah, here's what you're going to see. You know, those are not really Russians or this or that. I mean, they just laid out the whole thing as a hoax before Putin even got to do it. That was really effective, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, to pre-bunk, to get to the people with your own, because people believe the message that they hear first, to get to people before they've heard the false information and say, Here's what the other side is going to do. They're going to lie to you. They're going to tell you this, this, and this. So don't believe it when it happens. Mm. I'd love to see us do that for science denial. I mean, why is it that the disinformers 
were pumping out their propaganda in April 2020, and the debunkers didn't really get their boots on until after people had refused to take the mRNA vaccines, you know, maybe six, eight, ten months later. Mm. Why weren't we out there pre-bunking this stuff? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that seems like a, a great idea, but then you have to guess where the denial is going to come from first. And I, I don't think anyone would have thought that flat earthism was going to be a big factor in the year 2022. <laughs> well, well, flat, flat earth, I've got to say flat earth is the one exception uh, uh, topically because I could never figure out for all of my study who's making a buck on this, whose ideology, whose political power is being influenced. There doesn't seem to be a lot of money. There doesn't seem to be a campaign. I can't figure out any foreign government, any any organization that's, that's showing this. That does seem to me to be a grassroots thing. Now, maybe I'm duped. Maybe there, you know, there is something here. But to me, it just didn't seem, that seemed like one that just grew up organically. Mm -hmm. and, and that can happen. By the way, it seems to it, you know it contributes to the general mistrust of science and um, authority. I, I think, and whether or not it's pushed as part of that, or whether it just grows out of it, it's still dangerous. And I mean, they still believe twenty other conspiracy theories, um, you know, that maybe do hurt us. I've learned a lot here. This is this is good. So the things, the takeaways that I get from this are talk empathically to deniers, make an emotional connection, don't argue the facts against them because they weren't convinced by the facts. You need to look at the logic behind how they arrived at their position and show that it's logically unsupportable and pre-bunk. Is that the, the, the basic recipe for Yes, for that, that's that's the recipe for for most of us. I mean, if you're a scientist, go ahead and talk facts. Um, the the Bach and Schmidt study showed that that could be effective. But my point is, don't stay out of the fight because you're not a scientist. Don't say, you know, well, I I don't have a PhD in you know climate science, so I I can't even have this conversation with them. I don't know what to say. Um, you know, I'm not a physicist or an astronomer, but I went to talk to the flat earthers. You didn't have to be a physicist or an astronomer to engage them and and uh, and push back. So, you know, yes, you're 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 right. Those are the. There's one more takeaway that I forgot to to talk about, and this is important. The whole um, strategy of talking logic with them is called technique rebuttal, and it's based on five pillars. There are five steps uh, to, to realize here. Okay. Um, some cognitive scientists came up with this a few years ago, and, it, and it, it's another rubric. Every science denier about evolution, climate, vaccines, whatever, reasons in the same way. They cherry pick evidence. They believe in conspiracy theories. They engage in illogical reasoning. They denigrate uh, real experts and rely on their own fake experts, and they think that science has to be perfect. Once you know those five steps, that's kind of a guide to, to you know, in your own pre-bunking, or not, not just debunking, but in pre-bunking, right? Because you go into this conversation knowing 
this is person is a science denier. So they're going to cherry pick evidence. They're going to engage in conspiracy theories. I have to be ready. I have to know what to say when they do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the science is perfect thing is, is very important too. I mean, you, it's just an obvious misunderstanding of science. Science is always progressing and it's always, and it's always, um, you know, never hold, there's no proof as you say. It, it's always the, the weight of the evidence shows this or that. That's how science moves forward. So yeah, that that's a key issue. And I like the logic on that. You can disprove things in science, but you know, you can't, how are you going to prove that anthropogenic climate change is real? Well, there's such overwhelming evidence that Reuters reported a few years back that it was a million to one that the deniers were right. That's good enough. But, you know, if you're a denier, you're going to say, ah, so there's still a chance I'm I'm right. To really understand science, I think, you you know, uh, uh, Stuart Firestein wrote a great book uh, years ago called Failure. And he had another one called Ignorance. Two of the best books I ever read to understand how science works. You know, scientists, they they make mistakes and they learn from those mistakes. That's how science proceeds. It It's not perfect. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's uncertainty is a central part of how science makes progress. Uncertainty should be embraced by scientists. Yet when their back gets against the wall, sometimes they'll say, oh, no, this has been proven. Big mistake. Because you can't take that back once you say it. And then if there's any evidence against them, the deniers think, aha, you're a liar and I got you. So, you know, we, that's not the hill we need to die on. We need to say science can't prove, but there's a mountain of evidence. And why in the world would you give more credence to the hypothesis with less evidence? That, that's an important point. And I, I like your point that you don't have to be a Ph.D., to make a difference that I think a lot of people are hesitant to engage science denialism because they don't feel confident in their expertise or they don't have the knowledge. Uh, but that's uh, a strategical error. And, and, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the fire hose of disinformation or the gish gallop, as I call it. Gish is a creation scientist who puts out, you know, just a, poke holes in a whole bunch, create doubt in a whole bunch of theories and put the, put the person on the defensive trying to get the evidence to argue against each of these. That's not the proper response to being gish galloped. The proper response is to say, okay, well, what's, what's your theory? What's your competing theory? It doesn't seem to hold together. You know, you, you, you can't plug all the holes. Uh, science never plugs all the holes and and you just look like you're confused or or on the defense if you need to you need to basically get them to the point to agree that okay this this is not a false dichotomy just because i don't know everything about science doesn't mean science is wrong right or that you'd have to plug all those holes and i mean by the way remember that their knowledge so so they've they've been prepped for that they know about, you know, the six whole alleged holes in evolutionary biology. And, you know, they'll, you know, well, what about this study? What about that study? Can you refute this? Can you refute that? They don't know much more than that. Um, so, you know, one really, so, you know, again, try to get them on the grounds of talking about why not just what they believe, but why they believe it. 
But one here, here's a great strategy. If you don't know what else to do, tell them, convince me. If, if, if you know, you think that climate change isn't real, convince me, because I think it is. I trust the scientists. Why do you trust the scientists? Well, tell me why I shouldn't. Tell me why I should think you're right. And then as they talk, um, it'll all come out. The conspiracy theories, theological reasoning, the fake experts. And then that gives you an opening to say, well, wait a minute. Yeah, I've heard of that guy. Wasn't his work refuted? Oh, no, it wasn't refuted. Well, didn't he lose his medical license? Wasn't the theory unreproducible and the study was retracted? Well, that's because of the bias. That's because the Institute of Medicine is run by a cabal of this and that. You say, well, where's your evidence for that? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I mean, so it, it's pretty easy. If you let somebody talk who doesn't know basically what they're talking about, you let them talk long enough, they will contradict themselves. And, you know, you just, you wait for your moment. Um, sometimes it makes them uncomfortable. You know, if you just are quiet and you let them rant, um, you can begin to find, they'll give you what you need to push back against them. Yeah, it reminds me, um, once I was listening to a, a lecture by Ken Ham from, uh, answers in Genesis, uh, talk, talking about how you know the, crea the young Earth creationism is real and flood geology. So the all of geology was created in the Great Flood when all of the, the Earth was covered with water and all of the layers of geology were built up. And then later in his talk, he was talking about oh, and look at this part here. We have footprints of dinosaurs and humans right next to each other in the rock. And I was like, well. Were they walking on the bottom of the ocean? How did that work? <laughs> you know, it's a total self-contradiction. Like, why were these people walking on the rock that was laid down in a great flood in 40 days and, and their footprints were recorded? This, this is complete contradict self-contradiction of your theory. He'll, he'll have an answer to that, though. That kind of specific um, uh, thing. They, they, again, they'll have a punch list of answers to something like that. Um, you know, they're... That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. I mean, when they bring when creationists bring up things about the complexity of the eye, there's pushback. There are now studies which show that even the proto eye, even an eye that can only uh, distinguish between light and dark, would be evolutionarily advantageous. So this idea that no, it all has to be perfectly working together, which would be a miracle if it came together, you know, before it could be selected for, is is bunk. This idea that uh, there will show me the missing link. They found the missing link. It's called TikTok, the the um, fishapod, the fish with elbows. Uh, they found this, so you know, don't let them get away with that one anymore. So, I mean, there are ways to push back on the content, um, you know, just by by doing a little reading and and then and hear what they have to say about that. Some some of them still don't know that. Well, the joke about transitional fossils is as soon as you find one transitional fossil, that means there's two new gaps. <laughs> yeah, of course. So this has been great. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you about this and, and 
your strategies. I'm hoping all our listeners, uh, you guys will take this to heart and and use this in your daily activities. Go out and and talk to people outside of your echo chambers. Go out and, and ask these important questions because we need to talk empathically uh, if we want to convince people. And it's got to be a lot of one-on-one conversations. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on. Um, thank you. I have a question I'd like to ask you. I, I ask all, mm-hmm. all of my guests. Sure. Um, what, what, what kind of uh, science fiction are you interested in? What, what's your favorite uh, science fiction? Do you read any science fiction or watch I, I have to confess, I don't read science fiction. Science fiction or movies, it's the one genre that I, I really can never get my head around. Enough, but I'll tell you the reason why. It's because... I never know what to take for granted. I never know what's, you know, what's a law and what's not a law. Um, so it, mm-hmm. when if something is different from our current world, uh, I ask myself, well, well, wait a minute, you know, isn't that just a plot device to, you know, work in, you know, the ghost in the machine, you know, oh, I should have known all along because you could violate the laws of physics. So which laws can you violate and which ones can't you? And, and I, and I just, it, it always kind of upsets me because I can't follow the story because I'm I'm too skeptical, you know, as I, as I'm going along. <laughs> uh, that said, I really enjoy dystopian fiction. So okay. Fahrenheit 451, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pretty much anything by by Orwell. I mean, 1984 is is one of my yes. absolute favorite books. Um, the Brave New World is another favorite, though that one's harder to read. I'll tell you one I really enjoyed recently uh, after The Handmaid's Tale was, um, oh, now I'm going to have to remember the, the, the title. It's up on my shelf here. Can I can I see it? Testament, The Testament by Margaret Atwood. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, these are, um, uh, some people call that social science fiction, right? Because it's not violating the laws of nature, but it's just kind of what if... What if some future were different? And so, you know, so I, I do, I do enjoy that. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, there are occasions that I could cherry pick out occasional examples of science fiction that I've enjoyed. But for the most part, I like, I like to know what the laws of physics are when I take out that popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that, that, that's good. That, that's that's hard science fiction, in my I would call it. You know, the, where you know speculative, um, but potentially consistent uh, futures where maybe yes. we've discovered something that we don't understand now. Uh, that, I like that type of uh, science fiction myself as well. Blade Runner. I love Blade Runner. So, so is Blade Runner considered okay. yeah. science fiction? It, pro- it probably is. Yeah, I but would I mean, say so. Yeah, so for sure. you know, so I, I love Blade Runner. Uh, the, the Matrix movies were very interesting to me philosophically. So you know th- those, but you know, for the societal, re- and obviously we're violating some some uh, laws of nature there. I loved the martial arts scenes in the Matrix. Those were just uh, uh, candy because I mean, imagine being able to run up a wall and you know all this. This stuff. So yeah, that, that, that was, was a cool. lot of fun. So yes, they violated the laws of physics. They could dodge bullets, but uh, somehow that one uh, that one got me. Well, if it's a simulation, it's okay. Yeah, that's true. I guess that's right. In real life, it's much harder. 
Okay, well, thank you so much. I'm going to, uh, for, for coming on The Rational View, I'm going to send you a Rational View t-shirt. So uh, thank you, you can uh, spread The Rational View to all your friends and your network. Uh, and thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me on. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.